The Old Testament reading for this, the second Sunday after the Epiphany, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes from the prophet Isaiah, the 62nd chapter. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. For great is his steadfast love toward us. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The epistle reading comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, the twelfth chapter. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And this is the word of the Lord. When the Holy Gospel comes to us according to St. John, the second chapter. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out. And take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The nations will see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand. Your righteousness goes forth as brightness. Such beautiful language, such a poetic majesty the prophet Isaiah gives to us today. This nation... This group of people being the joy of God like a bride is the joy of her groom. All the badness taken away to the point that God gives them a new name. Everyone who looks to this people will be impressed, be dazzled, simply awed by how great they are. God's favor will be upon them and everyone else, all nations of the entire world, will look to these people and see what a wonderful treasure they have been given. What a marvelous picture the prophet has painted for us with his words. Isn't it wonderful to read about such a nation and people? Especially when you realize that the people the prophet is describing really do exist. Too bad it's not us, though, right? I mean, seriously, friends, this can't be our world. The situation Isaiah describes here, that's not our life, is it? Well, some people would say, isn't that obvious? He says in the first verse that he's talking to Jerusalem and Zion. Now, that's true, but that's not the problem. In fact, when we read that, we might actually be more inclined to believe that Isaiah is talking to us. Because we know that we as Christians are the new Jerusalem, the spiritual Zion. The entire Christian church on earth, past, present, and future, that's Jerusalem, that's Zion. And Israel, in many cases in the Bible, is the church. So it's not just a matter of address that makes me think Isaiah's not talking to us. It's the entire content of the message. We don't live in a fantastic world like the one Isaiah is describing, do we? Our world just isn't the wonderful world of this vision. I mean, look at the world around us today, our modern culture. Compare it to this passage. Do you see any differences? I I would hope you do because the difference is striking. We are not living in the splendor described here. I mean, for starters, can we honestly say that the nations look to us and see our righteousness? Do the kings of the world look at us and see our glory? I mean, let's assume for a moment that Isaiah really is talking to us as Christians God's church here on earth. Do the nations, those who do not believe, who are outside of Christianity, do they look and see righteousness in the church? Are we going forth as brightness, like a blazing torch? Sure doesn't seem like it today, does it? Seems like the church is more of a dim candle, if anything, a mere flicker of spotty light in the surrounding darkness. The nations may look at us, but they do so in disdain. 
They don't want to see our righteousness or glory. They want to see Christianity as a joke, as a made-up pack of lies. They want to degrade all believers, call them foolish, weak-minded, naive. The nations certainly are looking at the church, but only with a critical eye, waiting for Christianity to stumble, to finally collapse and be exposed as a great big fraud. So the church responds like Isaiah, right? By taking a firm stance in God's word, by saying, I cannot keep silent. It sets out to prove the nations wrong and to let its salvation shine out like a blazing torch, right? Yeah, not in our world. Can you blame unbelievers for shaking their heads sometimes when they look at the church here on earth? There's fighting and disagreement between different denominations and even within those denominations. Certain people calling themselves part of the Christian church are constantly doing things that are very unchristian. The world claims that the Bible is just a made-up, man-made book of legends. And so too many in the church say, yeah, okay, yeah, you're probably right. The world says Jesus was just some guy who had a lot of wise things to say. And many people in the church say, yeah, I guess that makes a lot more sense than what we thought before. The world insists that all religion is the same. That Buddha, Allah, Vishnu, or Wapikaniki, the wood god who lives in my desk, they're all the same as the Christian god. And some so-called Christians say, well, whatever you feel, that's right, as long as we can all get along. Rather than take a stand against these heretical lies, some who claim to be Christians actually embrace the culture and the world around them instead of looking to the Word of God to be their guide. These people deny the basic fundamental truths of God's Word for the sake of a false sense of earthly peace and unity. And don't think that we as confessional Lutherans are the only ones who notice it. Ask a pagan or an atheist what their biggest problem is with Christianity. Many of them will point to the hypocrisy of the earthly church, the fighting within, the inconsistency that they see. The nations look to the church, and what they see is not our righteousness, but our dirty laundry. Isaiah also says that these people will be given a new name, that they will no longer be called deserted and desolate. And once again, that's just not how I would describe our world today. In fact, I think we deserve the title, deserted, desolate. We as a culture, as modern people of the 21st century, are probably best described as deserted and desolate. We live in a world of moral decrepitude. I mean, look at some of the travesties that have become commonplace in our lives. Look at how God's word is trampled underfoot, not just by unbelievers, but even by those of us who believe. Premarital sex used to be something only wicked people would even consider. Now it's a marketing tool. Books, music, movies, TV shows, commercials, and advertisements, they all actively promote sex outside of marriage. In fact, many of these promote the idea that if you're not doing it, well, there must be something horribly wrong with you. I mean, how many sitcoms have you seen where the crowd laughs hysterically when someone shamefully admits that they're a virgin? Our culture belittles anyone who actually endorses abstinence before marriage. Pfft, 
waiting for 20-some years and then only having one partner? Can you imagine anything more pathetic? I look at the world that my children are growing up in, and I'm terrified. I can't imagine the pressures that they will be facing, and I pray that God would guide them to withstand this growing tide of filth. I see younger and younger children becoming parents. I see the fractured family structures that so many people have to deal with as divorce and baby daddies have become the norm. I see the persuasive nature of our world telling kids, just do it. It's easier to give in than to do what's right or just telling them that there really is no right or wrong. Just do whatever feels good. I see drugs becoming commonplace, violence becoming the norm, alienation becoming a stock feeling. I see even the basic truths of biology, the definition of man and woman being mocked and derided by those who wish to create their own false reality. And those who dare disagree, they're labeled as hateful or phobic. I see all this and so much more, and I shudder. I shudder and I ask, is this really a culture the Lord would take delight in? Well, not the Lord, but there's certainly someone else who takes delight in all the filth and decay of our time. Satan absolutely revels in the fact that so many have taken to believing his point of view, whether they realize it or not. This powerful, crafty, deadly foe seems to be running rampant in our world. In fact, as we look around ourselves, it often appears that he totally has the upper hand. Satan's power is strong, his influence is everywhere, and his marks are all over the world we live in today. And so clearly we can't be the people of Isaiah's vision because we deserve to be called desolate. And how about deserted? Does our world ever seem to be deserted and abandoned by God himself? I mean, absolutely. When terrorists strike, killing and injuring so many innocent people, we often ask, where was God? When the power of nature is unleashed upon us as storms, earthquakes, fires, and other disasters strike, we ask, why didn't God protect us? When the rulers of the world, even our own leaders, endorse sin like abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, pornography, living together outside of marriage, so many other sinful things, we ask, isn't God with us anymore? Where is God during all of these things? Doesn't it seem like he's left us sometimes? Doesn't it feel like we are indeed deserted? Our world, it's not a place of splendor and perfection. We live in a world that is riddled with problems, plagued with injustice, torn apart by strife and hatred. As we stand in the midst of this horror, as we ourselves participate in it, we feel such crippling pain. Even though we're Christians, the outside world comes crashing down upon us. We live in a fallen world, and as such, we suffer. We feel isolated and alone, fearing that there's nobody else who can understand what we're going through. We suffer hardship in our lives physically, mentally, economically, spiritually. We see all the evil around us welling up, threatening to sweep us away, and we wonder if God is really there at all. We see the world around us, and we long for a world like Isaiah describes. We long to be called by that new name, to have God delight in us, to experience that splendor that Isaiah so beautifully describes to us. 
wouldn't it be great if we could go there? Wouldn't it be great if we could just get away from all of this, even for just a little while, and be in that world of righteousness and salvation instead? Well, what if I told you we could? What if I told you that you could not only visit this place, but actually live there? Would that be great news? Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, for as bad as the world may seem around us, what Isaiah is describing here is a world which not only could be ours, but in fact is already ours. The world of righteousness and splendor and favor and joy, that is the world in which we live as Christians. Maybe it's not always our physical world, but by the grace of God, this is our world. God has taken delight in us, and we are now his. We are the royal diadem in his hand, the jeweled scepter that he takes pride in, the jewel of phenomenal worth, his most prized possession. Even though things seem horrid in our world, even though our culture seems to be falling apart all around us, we have been given that spiritual splendor and peace that Isaiah writes about. Not just in some fanciful, oh, wouldn't that be nice, or yes, someday we'll get there, but in a real, solid, tangible way. We are not deserted by God. Instead, we have been given the gift of God's merciful attention. Despite our sin, despite the fact that we don't deserve to be in God's presence, God himself has taken a personal interest in each and every one of us. Just think about that. God, the creator and Lord of the entire universe, has taken a personal interest in you. And not just as some novelty to entertain him for a few years, God has noticed you, And he now delights in you. As a new groom rejoices over his bride, God rejoices over you. He is thrilled to make you his own. And as a bride takes on a different last name, so too we are now called by a new name. No longer are we called deserted and desolate as we deserve. Instead, Isaiah says that we are called, my delight is in her. And we are called married joined to Christ. God's delight is in us, and we are rejoined to him. Sin had separated us, left us desolate and abandoned, but God has given us the free gift of salvation, and we are now married and joined to him. And now, just as a bride and groom share a common name, we as believers in Christ take on his name as well. We are changed. We are Christians. We are one with Christ, joined together for all eternity. And as such, our salvation now shines like a blazing torch, and our righteousness goes forth as brightness. Not by anything that we've done, because we have failed and sinned and done so much wrong, and we are still part of this fallen, sinful world. But instead, we have been given our salvation and righteousness as a free gift from God. He himself has bestowed upon us our new name. God in Christ came into our sinful world in order to set us free, not just for a little while, but for all eternity. He humbled himself to be born into our flesh. He came into this world and experienced firsthand the horrors of humanity. 
He saw infants being slaughtered in a vain and pompous attempt to maintain earthly power and to stop him. He saw self-righteous leaders of the church misleading people and perverting the word of God. He saw all the horrors that we have seen and so much more. He came into this world and he felt that same pain that surrounds us. He felt sorrow over the death of friends. He wept in frustration as those he loved rejected and despised him. He felt every pain that we can imagine and much, much more. Because he didn't come to this world just to observe our pain and suffering. He came to suffer in our place. When we think of our own suffering, it is deep and it is grievous. But when we consider the suffering endured by Jesus Christ, we are simply unable to comprehend it. Jesus Christ, a man without sin, God himself in our flesh, suffered a torture and agony unlike anything we can imagine. He was betrayed by one who was closest to him, sold out for a mere 30 pieces of silver by his disciple and friend, Judas Iscariot. He was beaten and mocked by guards who arrested him, though he did nothing to resist them. He knew the greatest of injustice, as he was unlawfully tried and condemned, sentenced to death, though he had done no wrong. He felt the whips, the fists, the spit, the thorns, the weight of the cross, the jeers of the crowd. On that hill called Golgotha, he felt nails pierce him, felt his life leaving him, felt the torturous agony of crucifixion. He felt the very pains of hell itself, felt the abandonment of God in a way that we will never understand as God the Father turned his back on his only beloved Son. All because he took the sin of the world upon himself. Everything that's wrong in this world, everything evil and foul and wicked, all of it was placed upon him. Every time that we have done wrong, Jesus took it upon himself. He willingly gave himself over to death so that we might live. His death took away our guilt, our filth, our sin. We have been cleansed by his shed blood, and we stand before God now, and we are declared holy, innocent, and righteous. Our righteousness shines out as brightness, and our salvation as a blazing torch. Not because of what you've done for yourself, but because of what Christ has done for you. Jesus died for you, and for me, and for the entire fallen, sinful, decrepit world around us. Jesus died to cleanse this world of its sin and evil, to defeat Satan and all his works. But he didn't stop there. He went on to defeat the last enemy of all. Because Jesus Christ, in his death, defeated death itself. On that first Easter morning, Jesus rose from the grave in glory and splendor. The stone was rolled back from the tomb, not to let him out, but so that the whole world could see that he was risen. And he has assured us that just as he rose, we too shall rise. Death is still present in our world. We will get sick, our bodies will fail, and we will lie down in the sleep of death. But death is no longer an eternal nothingness. Death has been defeated. Death could not hold Jesus, and it cannot hold us either, for by grace and power we are united with him, and we will rise from our grave just as Jesus rose from his. And when we rise, 
All nations shall see our righteousness and our glory fully as we enter into that sinless paradise of heaven. How can we be so sure of this? How can I stand here before you today in such a terrible world and make these wonderful claims with such certainty? Because we have been given the gift of God's holy, perfect, and eternal word. God's word has come to our lives and worked faith in our hearts. And it has assured us that this is most certainly true. God's word came to us at our baptism. By the power of his word, ordinary water became the washing of regeneration. That constant cleansing flood in our life that daily drowns the sinful nature within us and forgives our sins. We were joined to God and God rejoiced over us. Like a groom proclaiming that he will have his bride, God proclaimed that he would have us. The bond of faith and love joined us to God and we became his, all by the power of his word. And by the power of his word, that bond is nurtured and built up each day through his body and blood. Here at this altar, God's word performs a miracle each and every time we partake of his holy supper. Regular bread and wine are joined to the very body and blood of Jesus, given to us for the remission of all our sin. As a groom prepares and provides for his beloved, Jesus provides for us, nurturing and strengthening us. Through his precious holy word, so available to each and every one of us, Jesus comes to our lives constantly, strengthening that bond of faith. His word, it's not just a bunch of letters on a page in a book in our coffee table. God's word is powerful. It doesn't just describe our situation, it changes it and fixes it. When we fall into sin, God's word proclaims forgiveness and we are forgiven. When we are overwhelmed by all the horrors surrounding us in this world, God's word proclaims comfort and we are comforted. When we feel as if there is no one out there to help us, God's word proclaims his love and we are loved. This is how we have splendor here on earth. This is how our righteousness and salvation shine out to the nations and to the kings. And yet as wonderful as all this is, it is but a foretaste of the feast to come. We have peace from God in our lives now, no matter how bad the world around us might become. And yet, in the new creation, this peace and righteousness and splendor, it will be realized in its entirety. Jesus will come again. Of that we can be sure, because his word has proclaimed it. And when he comes, he will usher in the new creation, eternal paradise, heaven itself. Jesus will appear in glory and judgment, and this sinful, evil world will cease to exist. This flesh will rise from the grave, perfect and holy, to experience that paradise of heaven firsthand. Our flesh, which died surrounded by a wicked world, will rise to glory and perfection. There will be no more pain of any kind. There will be no more guilt. There will be no more corruption. Jesus has defeated all these things. And we will enjoy his victory for all eternity. The sufferings that we endure now, the pain, the alienation, the fear, the guilt, the horror that we all know, all of this cannot compare to the joy that we will experience on that day. Our suffering here is temporary, but our joy is eternal when we cling to God's word. Our pain is simply a part of our life right now, but our glory is the whole of our eternal life. God has come to you. 
has given you a righteousness that goes forth as brightness, salvation that burns like a blazing torch in the darkness of this world. God himself rejoices over you, and he promises you that you are neither desolate nor deserted. His delight is in you. He rejoices over you like a groom rejoices over his bride. Though you are a sinner, you are a crown of splendor and a royal diadem in the hand of God himself. Eternal joy is yours because God has delighted in you and has sent his only son to die for you. And by his cross alone, by his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of all of your sin and eternal life in heaven is yours. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.